Decision-making plays a vital role in business. Yet as a trait, it's often overlooked when identifying, assessing, onboarding and empowering leadership talent. Research from leading global executive search firm Kingsley Gate and FT Longitude of the Financial Times Group delves into this critical topic to explore the different dimensions of organisational decision-making and the relationships between decision-making and executive talent, talent strategy and employee satisfaction. I'm joined today by Aaron Mitchell-Feingold, the Chief Marketing Officer of Kingsley Gate, to discuss the findings of their Latin American LATAM survey, which builds upon their original global research launched last year. Aaron, thank you for joining us here today. Thank you for having me, Nicola. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Aaron, what stood out for you as one of the most interesting findings in your LATAM research? Uh, great question. Before I answer that, I did want to just share a little bit about how we conducted this research together with, as you mentioned, FT Longitude, a member of the Financial Times Group. So back in July of 2023, we did a comprehensive global study that was a quantitative survey with over 400 C-suite, C-1, C-2 respondents across five markets and 12 industries. We repeated the same research in the sense that we used the same questionnaire when we went out to look at the Latin American region. We got a total sample of 150 respondents, similar seniority, similar industry split across Peru, Chile, Argentina, Mexico, Brazil, and Colombia. Uh, it was really interesting to see places where these two studies converged, which essentially in a headline is the thesis we had, which is that decision-making really matters in every market and tends to be overlooked to varying degrees, but does really tend to be overlooked, certainly when it comes to executive hiring across markets. So it was interesting to compare where these two studies converged with where they actually diverged. One of the things that I thought was really interesting was that in the Latin America sample, you actually, when we asked a question about overall satisfaction with an organization's decision-making process and effectiveness, we saw 61% of our respondents from LATAM say they were satisfied, which is really high compared to only 49% in the global sample indicating that level of satisfaction. And I think that that speaks to a number of things. I think it speaks to, one, an overall different calibration in terms of responses to survey questions in general, but also, importantly, it speaks to, I think, an awareness in Latin America that some business outcomes are the results of things outside the company's immediate control. And that may be why there is less frustration with the internal process and more recognition that the business is going to perform or the business is going to succeed or fail at the mercy of both 
internal levers, as well as a number of external factors, such as fiscal policy, monetary policy, political climate, etc., all of which are quite relevant in the region quite often. Isn't that interesting? Yes. Can we turn to the question of the impact of decision-making styles, perhaps, on team diversity? For example, what are some of the advantages of diverse decision-making approaches in a team? This is a great question. I think that, in general, we would all agree that having diversity of experience or perspective or skill set is always useful for making decisions, solving problems, getting things done. It's always going to be beneficial, I think, to have somebody take the finance lens, somebody take the customer experience lens, somebody take the engineering lens. That's always going to lead to a better answer. Um, there are you know, many different variations on a theme here when it comes to the actual profiles in the room. But this meta question that you asked about decision-making approaches, I find a little more ambiguous, which is to say that I'm not entirely sure that I would rather have people come to solve a problem who have very diverse, very heterogeneous decision-making styles or inclinations versus a team, again, comprised of experts in different fields who have the same uh, decision-making style or who have at least an alignment on what approach they want to use. I'm not convinced that the former, the heterogeneity of decision-making style is inherently better than homogeneity of decision-making style. However, so that let me that, that's just the first point, which is to say... I think that people will come to an answer faster if they all agree on how they're going to get to the answer. Now, they may have disagreements about what the answer is, and that's very much in a business setting what you want. You want debate, uh, lively debate, hopefully, about what the pros and cons are and the trade-offs around different possible answers or solutions. But when it comes to actually bringing together people with different ideas about how the decision should be made in the first place, I will say it comes with its very obvious disadvantages. The advantages that our research has indicated are present in that kind of a setup are really threefold, which is that number one, if decision-making is something that can be improved on, then bringing in people with different ideas about what the best approach is may actually improve that effectiveness in the first place. And Bain & Company has proved time and time again that high performance on decision effectiveness is correlated with high performance on financial results more broadly. So that's one benefit, is that bringing together heterogeneous styles might actually yield improvement. Number two is that bringing together heterogeneous styles may also yield some kind of un- uh, some hidden or overlooked or deprioritized pockets of information elsewhere in the organization. So, for example, if I have one person who says my decision-making approach or the, the best decision-making approach for this is to lock five people in a room, debate it for a day, and then come up with an answer, 
And somebody else says, actually, I think the right approach is to go and survey or conduct focus groups with dozens of people around the organization. You have diverging beliefs on what the best approach is, but the presence of that second person in the room might lead the group to, even if they don't conduct focus groups with dozens of employees around the organization, it might lead them to ask a key question of somebody they previously wouldn't have included in the process. And then the third benefit uh, that we found is really centered around this idea of priorities. And for every business, at depending on where they are in their life cycle, the regulatory environment, and so many other factors, they're going to need to focus on, at the risk of oversimplifying, they're going to need to either focus on what we call expansion or what we call optimization. Expansion really is a shorthand for things like growing market share, expanding to new geographies, innovating, creating categories, build, bringing new products to market, etc. Optimization is a shorthand for things like Six Sigma, lean process optimization, looking at margins and the bottom line, cost management, consistency and quality, those types of efforts. Um, and while these are not always in conflict with each other, I will say that many organizations do themselves a disservice by trying to achieve excellence on both simultaneously. It's really hard to spread your attention across both of these pretty divergent uh, prioritization options. So I do think that bringing in individuals with not only different skill sets, but also different orientations in terms of what are the principles that should guide the decision in the first place in terms of where does the company really need to go? Is the next stage for the company one of capturing greater market share and entering 15 new countries? Or is the next phase for the company really getting good at consistency and process excellence? Uh, that can be a useful uh, catalyst, if you will, for a very productive discussion. You say different lenses of perspective for lively debate, and presumably for lively debate, international diversity and different cultural backgrounds will also help to optimize team diversity. That's exactly right. Whether you're at a multinational enterprise or even a company that's operating for the time being in a single geography, different national cultures are very often at play in the workplace, just given what global talent mobility looks like in 2024. And it's important to understand the interaction that a team made up of individuals from different national cultures, either in their upbringing, countries of birth, or, or where they've even spent time as adults, where they may have been acculturated, um, will play, to understand the role that that will play in the decision-making process. We cross-referenced, since our study was global in nature, some of the data that we were able to produce with, for example, quantitative assessments of national cultures coming from the Hofstede Institute, and we found uh, our data was largely very consistent where you see things like hierarchy and power distance. It does have, of course, a meaningful impact on decision making. But the thing perhaps that I would say is maybe even more notable than where there are differences is where there tend to start to be 
greater similarities. And that's because as the world becomes more global, you can assume about a lot less, honestly, about what values, norms, and traditions are at play from a national culture perspective in any given boardroom or conversation. For example, the UAE and Singapore were two markets that we studied in our global survey from July of 2023. Uh, And we know that there are a high number of foreign nationals working in both those markets in the private sector. And what's very clear is that those, uh, and this we know from qualitative interviews, those foreign nationals are going to bring to the decision-making process a set of schemas, beliefs, again, norms that are derived from their quote-unquote home culture, as well as those that are derived either consciously or unconsciously from the host culture. And that makes it less clear what exactly the decision-making pattern of behavior is going to look like from a national culture standpoint whenever any group of people gets together to make a decision. Was there anything unexpected that came through in the LATAM findings? There was one finding that was really interesting to me personally because we asked this question as a free text response at the end of the survey, meaning there were no answer choices, radio buttons, check boxes, et cetera, to select from. Uh, and we asked them, we said, what do you think contributes most to time wastage at companies when it comes to decision making? Um, naturally, the first response was lack of data. And this is something that Karen Brandis, who leads our Latin America region at Kingsley Gate has been emphasizing for some time, which is that the availability of data or lack thereof really drives a lot of routines, behavior, and even culture to some extent, plus talent selection at a number of Latin American enterprises. So that is the first response, the most common response, was not surprising. However, The second most common theme that came up in this free text answer was this idea of experienced decision makers. Uh, And the quote that FT Longitude provided us was, not much experience in the field or not enough experience to properly solve the problem and make decisions. This really caught our attention because we were surprised that more experience hadn't been tested, if you will, during the selection and interview process. A lot of the purpose of the executive hiring, executive search process is to essentially understand what a person's qualifications are based on past experience. And the fact that this wasn't happening we found to be really surprising and a bit concerning. Now, the thing that's really interesting is it is linked to this question that we asked in both of our studies, the global as well as the Latin America specific survey, around how often executives were asked to describe either their decision-making experience or their decision-making approach in an interview before taking their current senior leadership position. 
And the thing that's really interesting is that in Latin America, as in the global study, we found that that discussion isn't happening at the interview stage as often as we would like to see. So we know that in the global survey, 25% of the time, this important discussion was omitted from the search process, uh, which we find to be uh, alarming. And, you know, we really think that that number should be zero. Uh, you know, even 1% of the time is probably too high because anytime you're hiring someone for a decision-making role, knowing something about how they make decisions, what experience and pattern recognition they're going to they're gonna rely on, where they've made decisions before, knowing that is really important. And so that is what we've seen in uh, the global study. And then uh, in the Latin America study, the number was slightly better, uh, but still, uh, it was below um, our benchmark, if you will, of 0%. It's, it's, it's kind of the, the analogy that I often draw is it's kind of like asking the question, how many senior executives today at FTSE 100 companies in Britain, for example, uh, took their current role without having any discussion about what their personal compensation was going to be? Well, that number, I don't have to run a survey to tell you, is zero. Um, and so our vision at Kingsley Gate is that the answer to this question about decision-making should eventually be zero as well. Kingsley Gate is, of course, a global executive search firm. So selection and interviewing is your bread and butter. What does the ideal interview entail, Aaron? Well, from our perspective, it's very standard in executive search to focus on two components experience and leadership competencies. Experience, for lack of a better word, is what's your track record of success? What problems have you faced in the past? How did you handle them? What did you learn from them? Do you have enough, essentially, do you have enough reps under your belt in order to come and take this position? It's a very much a qualification type problem statement. Then on leadership competencies, that often has to do with how you lead. What's your mindset, your philosophy around leading? How do you form coalitions? How do you think about um, leading a large team, not just of your direct reports, but of course their reports and so on and so forth, cascading information, inspiring others, etc. Well, at Kingsgate, we believe that those two components are essential and they might even be the most important components in assembling the case for any one executive candidate. However, what we also believe is that what's sorely missing is a discussion around decision-making and particularly this question of decision-making style or approach. So what we believe the ideal interview will entail is a lot of depth covered around the first two components and also a discussion about how do you approach decision-making? What's your natural style? When have you flexed to other styles? As well as making it very clear what the dominant style is at the organization that might be absorbing this executive candidate in the coming weeks or months, depending on the hiring lead time. One of the issues here that we uncover is that many companies actually can't accurately describe 
their decision environment because they haven't put in the time to actually understand it. And this is one of the things that can be so transformative for organizations is to understand how we make decisions here, how what are the company-wide norms, what are some maybe department or team-specific norms, do we like those, do we want to evolve those? That level of self-awareness and reflection can lead to really productive conversations with executive candidates where I, as the hiring manager, share what we're doing today, and then you as the candidate say, based on what you've told me, here's how I think I could add value. I do some things in a way that's very aligned with what you do today. Other things I do in a slightly divergent way, I could help you push to that next level of decision effectiveness, or let's say you've just worked on decision effectiveness for the last several years, I can help you sustain um, all of that goodness that you've helped to develop. So really having this discussion, we view as so crucial because decision-making is what, according to McKinsey, executives spend 40% of their time doing. Uh, and without this level of awareness as to, A, how this incoming candidate is going to approach decision-making, and B, how we as a company approach decision-making, it's really hard to actually understand whether or not this person, despite or, or in addition to their qualifications, is going to actually be able to come in and be effective day one, month one, quarter one. Hmm. I also noticed what I thought was another interesting finding, the, the difference between the response from LATAM versus the rest of your global sample on the factors which would improve organizational decision-making effectiveness. Because in the original sample, an increase in decision-making transparency came top, followed by an increase in decision speed. But for LATAM, decision-making speed was cited as the top factor, why do you think this was, and are there any interesting takeaways from this data? It's a great question. I think one of the things that uh, we really noticed was this idea of decision-making transparency in the global sample as defined as sometimes not even decision, not even transparency into the decision-making as it is unfolding, but even decisions after they've been made. It may sound mind-bogglingly obvious, but after a company makes a decision, they often need to go communicate to a broader group of people than just those who were involved in making the decision that that took place and that the company has now landed somewhere and that we're going to now execute against that. Um, it may sound obvious, but the fact of the matter is so frequently this is not happening. And that's why you see that response in the global sample. Interestingly, in LATAM, by contrast, as you pointed out, speed was really the improvement that many of our survey respondents were really craving. And I think that this really relates back to something we were saying at the beginning around this whole idea of a more volatile business environment. And one of the things that happens very frequently in Latin America, though it happens everywhere, but to a higher degree in Latin America, is 
a need to respond to the external environment in very near real time. But often coupled with the fact that data isn't as available or isn't as high quality as the decision makers who are accountable for driving the business forward would like. And I think that's a very challenging reality to be in. And we've learned from our uh, Latin American study, as well as from qualitative interviews, we conducted actually over 45 qualitative, qualitative interviews in the months of October and November last year. We've learned from so many of these C-level and C-minus-1 executives at Latin American Enterprises that the reality of needing to respond quickly to the external environment without data is one of the most challenging facets of their jobs. And so if they could make decisions faster, given that there's a lack of data, what they would at the very least be able to do potentially is see the results of those decisions materialize in real time and then course correct as they need to, because that is going to be the only way to gain insight into whether one decision is higher quality or more favorable than another versus analyzing the problem for months on end, as tends to happen sometimes in other markets like the US and the UK. We'll include a link to Kingsley Gates' research alongside this interview. Thank you again, Aaron.